For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's sustainability editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis. I just think it's curiosity at the core of it. Like, I just really want to know the answer to things. You talk about revolution in 68. No, we make the revolution before. Can we just go back to making really beautiful clothes with a soul and minimize the waste and think a little before we we make things and bring back the value? Provided you wake up every morning and you're aware of the fact that your wardrobe is in the fashion supply chain, then you're a fashion decision maker. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. Sass Brown is an English designer, educator and the original eco-fashionista. She wrote one of the early books about the subject in 2010, and it's called Eco-Fashion. Although now she's moved on from that phrase. She prefers clothing ethics. When I ask her why, she says sustainability means so many different things to different people. It could be everything from diversity to fair trade to the environmental impact of a product. You can't do it all at the moment, she says. You have to make choices based on your values, and those are your personal ethics. For many years, Sass taught at the FIT in New York. She was also the founding dean of the Dubai Institute of Design and Innovation. She has purple hair, she's a dedicated thrifter, and she has her shoes made by hand. She's just my kind of person. But actually, this is not an interview about a life in fashion, although we could gas on about that for ages behind the scenes. No, this is a conversation in which we focus on how fashion shapes our collective image and how and why we allow it to dictate culture and often get it so wrong. The reason I wanted to lure Sass onto this podcast was her work around diversity and representation. It was from her that I learned this crazy thing about how fashion illustration is classically taught. And basically it stretches the body to like these completely bonkers proportions. And that trickles down into fashion design and ultimately into stores and into what we buy and wear or try and wear, but never fits. She is also candid about how magazines, media, advertising and the runways continue to push a single idea of beauty. Now that is changing, but not fast enough. We know that. Ethical fashion isn't just about garment workers being treated right. It's also the whole thing, including us, shaping culture in a responsible, respectful and empowering way. Not making women feel crap about themselves. And I know fashion is for all genders, but it is overwhelmingly women who consume and make it. Not plundering from other cultures. And we know that fashion keeps doing this without asking permission. Not perpetuating eating disorders, not ignoring entire sections of society who need clothes too. And basically, not propping up a broken system that deserves to be rebuilt. That was a lot of knots for someone who's always trying to push the positive. Did anyone read my open letter to fashion that ran on ecoedge.com for International Women's Day? This is how it concluded, and I think it's quite relevant here. I wrote, I want to remind you, fashion, that it is women who got you where you are. Without us women, you wouldn't be rich and successful. It is we, she, the women who keep you in business. We are your workforce and your market. Truth be told, fashion, I don't want to break up with you. 
you still have the ability to make my heart flutter with your sequins and your ruffles and that inexplicably alluring, sexy, ugly blouse I just saw in a magazine. But here's the thing, it's not enough. If we're going to make it fashion, you're going to have to grow up and become a lot more responsible. What do you think? I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And please consider rating or reviewing the show, telling your friends, sharing on Facebook, whatever floats your boat. I am so grateful for your help in spreading the word. Just a quick thank you to our citizen producers. You are the best. I'm gradually getting to the point where my website's going to be fixed and we'll be listing all of the incredible people who've supported the podcast through our crowdfunding on the website. But big, big love and thanks to you all. And now let's hear from Sass Brown. Hello, Sass. Hi. Welcome to this makeshift studio in Fremantle, Western Australia. Happy to be here, thank you. <laughs> Were you happy to be here when you got dive-bombed by a magpie? Oi, that was a new experience. I felt like it was a welcome to Australia moment. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I raised that is because I just went for a walk down the beach yesterday and there was a sign that was like, beware... Ironically, it was called Bather's Beach, as in the welcoming Bather's Beach. And then it said, general warnings, and one was snakes in the dunes. <laughs> Lovely. And I've when never I've... seen that symbol before. You see sharks, <laughs> but snakes in the dunes. I know, and after I posted on Facebook that I'd been attacked by a magpie, somebody nicely posted uh, a little photo of uh, a tiny, what must have been like a field mouse or something on someone's finger. A tiny finger. possum? Yeah, a tiny little, little guy and saying, he may not look like he wants to kill you but he does. Welcome to Australia. <laughs> Everything is out to kill you in wildlife world. Yikes. <laughs> We're in Fremantle. We're at a sustainable fashion event this week. You and I spoke at the University of Notre Dame. The seminar was titled Disposable Planet, which is a horrible phrase. Mm. Now, Sass, in your opinion, how does that word disposable apply to fashion's current state of play? Oh gosh, well it does, doesn't it? I mean, clothing, fast fashion really is disposable. It's meant to be disposable. That's the whole point of it. So you can consume as many short-term trends as is humanly possible. And then once they're out of date a couple of weeks after they've been, like, they've come out, then you can throw them away and dispose of them. So, I mean, I think disposability of clothing is, is a massive problem. Clothing that isn't meant to last, clothing that isn't made from any kind of quality of manufacture, whether it's fibres or production. Clothing that treats the planet and the people that produce the clothes as if they're disposable. Um, and I think it's shameful. And as much as we know about it, it's not a consideration at the till when most people are purchasing things. The slow fashion movement's been compared a lot to the slow food movement. There are certainly similarities, but an awful lot of differences as well. It's not a straight line from farm to wardrobe as it is farm to table for clothing. But are we getting better? We are. I mean, there's more and more worthwhile things going on. I don't know if we're really at a tipping point yet. I'd like to think we are. I tend to be a bit optimistic. But there's certainly more and more backlash against it. I mean, I feel like, I often feel like, gosh, we're in a moment and there's all this activity happening and there's all this will. But once you get outside the bubble and you go into a local shopping centre or yeah. wherever it is, your high streets, actually you don't see much behavioural change. No, I mean, I think it was a, an interview or a, a little piece I saw, admittedly, years ago now, uh, somebody interviewing shoppers not long after Rana Plaza, actually, and interviewing shoppers in high street, well-known chain 
fast fashion brands saying, so have you heard of this? And like 99.9% of them had never heard of it. And that was right after it happened. I don't know that we're doing much better a job of communicating it to the you know general public. Is it as bad as Lee Edelcourt has proclaimed? You invoked her in your talk yesterday, but here is a quote from her, the famous Dutch trend forecaster, of course. She says, our fashion system is completely obsolete. What do you think of that? I think she's absolutely on the money, and I think that we were all thinking that, or many of us were thinking that. Lee managed to voice it and voice it very eloquently. You know, so many of us were saying, come on, this has to end. We have to find more meaningful ways of producing. Um, And so I think that she did what she does very well and she voiced the undercurrent of what many of us were feeling. So absolutely, fashion is dead. That's what she called it. Yeah. I think it was 2015. Uh, 14 or 15. Yeah, Yeah, 15, you might be right. Anyway, round about there. I mean, fashion is dead. It's good kind of thought-provoking, controversial stuff as a statement goes. Is it dead? I mean, come on. No, it's not. I mean, yeah, I I just said it was, I know. And now I just said, no, it's not. (laughs) No, but it's I can the be a bit contrarian that... sometimes. <laughs> but I think, you know, what she was talking about was mainstream, high street fashion, and also some luxury or premium brands to a certain degree. That, you know, this sort of, she was particularly talking about fashion education and how fashion education has traditionally tried to train designers to be these divas and stars that get picked up by an LVMH or a large luxury brand and then get turned into a celebrity. And she was saying, this isn't the future of fashion. Oh, what gave it soul? Yesterday, um, during your slideshow, you popped up a picture of Karl Lagerfeld next to a red carpet. I did. Someone on the red carpet. I mean, that kind of epitomises how we venerate the stars, if you like, of fashion. Absolutely. Kind of untouchable. I mean, yeah. people running around behind him with a silver tray with his Diet Coke on it. And, <laughs> you know, don't look at him in the lift, whatever it is. But that stuff seems to me quite old-fashioned now, I it's think. It's incredibly old-fashioned. You know, whether you're talking about Karl Lagerfeld, whether you're talking about any number of people in publishing as well as in fashion, that sort of iconic diva status, it's not the future of design it can't be it's a dinosaur in your world teaching students working with the next generation previously with your work with FIT in Florence and in New York what are you telling students then do you get students who have you know if I had a mood board I'd put on superstar a and aspire to be that is that still happening or are you finding that there's a different approach from the next generation there is a different approach to a certain degree but I think the problem is that education is not necessarily keeping up with that. You know, I don't always want to say millennials this, millennials that, because it's not all about millennials. Yes, they are the next generation. But, you know, there's really super interesting things that are happening right across a diversity of age ranges, a diversity of people, a diversity of places. We're all right and we're all. There you go, see? (laughs) Also, I know, I mean, think about Gen Z. There is definitely a generational shift when you think about very young kids. Absolutely. No, there is more and more social consciousness and planetary or ecological consciousness in this generation growing up. And and that's really important. I think we're all trying to aim at sustainable fashion or ethical fashion, whatever you want to call it, as being a term that we no longer need to use anymore because that's what everything is. And then you can just point out those that aren't ethical instead and they can get a label, you know. So I think it has to be unethical, exactly. So, you know, we need to stop talking. Hopefully we get to a stage where we can stop talking about ethical fashion. I love that you raise that word because I spend most of my life talking about sustainability, Mm -hmm. sustainable fashion, but of course that can also encompass ethics. 
ethics and I use it as an umbrella term mm-hmm. to mean all of it the whole mm-hmm. shebang but ethics is a word you do like yeah I mean you use it what's your Instagram handle clothing, oh, clothing ethics. ethics clothing ethics so talk yeah. to me about what that word means to you why you use it and where we're at with it in 2019 I think that our values are something that are very personal. And the fashion industry is not at a place where there is a Nirvana product that can satisfy made locally, fair trade, supporting, you know, global artisanship, natural fibers, entirely biodegradable or closed loop, doesn't pollute. You can't satisfy all of those things. It's not physically possible. So you have to make choices and you have to make choices based on your values. And that is your personal ethics. And you have to choose what you believe in and you have to choose what you support because you can't do it all at the Mm. moment. So I think ethics or conscious design are, are words that I tend to default to now. Probably in part because when I wrote the first book, Eco Fashion, I mean, that word eco, a bit like green, has been so misused and and it's not really a definable term to begin with. So I've sort of rather moved away from using that. I want to get on to that book and the context for that book a little later, but... Just on this ethics journey and your interest in how we frame this stuff, where's it come from in you? I mean, I actually want to take you right back to when Sass was a kid in Hartlepool. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) That's about 15 lifetimes ago now. Let me see. I mean, I always had an interest in fashion. Many fashion people do, I think. It's sort of something that's awakened in them quite early. So, I mean, I was, you know, going gaga at sort of 9, 10, 11, 12 over who I thought was Yves Saint Laurent at the time. (laughs) but you know as a little kid though yeah no I used to see Vogue magazines god knows where I saw them I'm sure my mum didn't buy them but probably in doctor's offices or something and just be so inspired and awed by the color and the print and the visuals and the inspiration so it's something I always wanted to do so I remember being a high school student we were choosing our O-levels and I was doing for whatever reason doing quite well in science and biology and when I chose my O-levels I was choosing like art and design subjects and my career advisor was like what are you doing and I'm like well I want to be a fashion designer and they're like a what mm. a fashion designer well that's not a real job is it <laughs> what did you look like <laughs> what did I look like I mean oh, what were you dressed in as oh, well, a teenager school uniform but um uh, let me see outside of school I was probably a bit freaky my mum used to say if I see you walking down the street with you if, if, when I'm with a friend I will ignore you and she did used to do that actually <laughs> well you're freaky <laughs> now you've got purple hair <laughs> I got purple lipstick. Oh no, this is me all toned down and older. <laughs> so yeah, I used to use my body as a means of of experimenting and and so on. Go so. on, share an outfit. Share a nineteen-year-old sass outfit. Okay, maybe not a nineteen. How about a twenty-year-old? So you like about a year later, I was studying and I had won. I was in my fashion program. I had won a Fiorucci Prize for a design. We used to do a lot of fashion design competitions. Just for listeners who are not aware of Fiorucci, which <laughs> is Fiorucci. iconic, can you just just sum it up in two sentences? Because it's an amazing thing. Oh my God, Fiorucci was like the Studio Fifty Four fabulous clubbing, don't care kind of exhibitionist clothing. <laughs> so I won. An Elio Fiorucci. Elio 
Richie. Yes. In the early on, like probably 60s when he had his first shot, but 80s Maybe. was explosion of that denim label, yeah. right? 80s and 90s, I think it was huge when the clubbing world was going insane and it was a free-for-all, sexy. basically. It was super sexy. Mm. So I won a contest with Ferrucci for an outfit I designed, which interestingly was semi-topless, so I guess it worked with the whole Studio 54 thing. So in other words, one boob was hanging out. Of course, I had to. you have to model them yourself at that stage because <laughs> you're just a fashion student. So I had another fashion student who artfully painted my left nipple, if I remember it was my left. <laughs> and of course, I won the prize. But part of the prize was you got invited to their Christmas party at some iconic London club or other. I can't remember what oh one God, it was. Sensational. And you had to wear it. <laughs> Which, as it happened, I was one of many people who had boobs hanging out that night. So it was hardly... <laughs> you were the winner. I'm so glad I asked that question. As I said, I'm a lot more mellow these days. <laughs> Love it. From there on, you became a designer. When did you get into education? You know, like a lot of people, it sort of happened accidentally. I think there's sort of two schools of thought with education. It's either something you always plan to do and you, you know, you go into it. You want to mould the souls yeah. of the future generation. Or somehow you just end up there. You know, I had my own collection for many years. I moved continents. I was in the UK. I was in Canada. I ended up working for a, a large brand and just got a bit disenfranchised with the whole thing because it was just business I can't say it was really about ethics I'd like to say there was a lovely light bulb moment where I saw you know really horrible sweatshop conditions and I didn't really I just got really disenfranchised about it because it was just boring in the the disconnect where you're not being creative yeah just what's sold what's selling what's you know and no I just got bored with it and I was in Montreal at the time. I'd had a, a company financing my own brand that then went belly up, so which is why I ended up working in fashion at, for big brands. And um, I wanted to move to New York. I just felt like I needed a change. And uh, so I happened to apply for a teaching position, just a single class at FIT. And shockingly, they decided to hire me. I worked for FIT for about 18 years. Fast forward to when Eco Fashion, your first book, was published. Was that 2000? It came out 12, I think, 2012. Now, you have said that at that time, ethical fashion still had crunchy granola connotations. Yeah, I mean, at that time, all of the books that were around that I was coming across tended to be about ethics and design. So you'd find an energy-saving kitchen appliance (laughs) next to a a boring, undyed, unbleached T-shirt with a political slogan on it. And it was lovely, but it just wasn't talking about what really great design was happening around the world. And I think that was one of the times when, you know, we were at a really big shift in the fashion industry where we were moving from inspirational design happening in Paris, Milan, and and all of the fashion centres around the world to emerging designers that could be in Valparaiso, Chile or Manchester in the UK or... uh, Hartlepool. Hartlepool even. There you go. I don't know about Hartlepool. But but yeah, they could be anywhere and they were doing really interesting things. And It's sort of democratisation of the system, isn't it, that came with social media as well as with emerging markets. Exactly. That's really what it was. What this whole new global democratisation of the fashion system means is more voices, right? Absolutely. And, you know, at the time, there were many amazing designers dotted around the world, and they might have had a really good local following, but they weren't getting global coverage. And I just felt it was really important to talk about the work that was happening. But you were zeroing in on the eco elements. Absolutely. 
Because there was just really interesting work being done, whether it was designers rediscovering artisanship and tradition in their locations and partnering and working with artisans, whether they were hand weavers or embroiders or whatever, but doing it in a contemporary way and doing it in a beautiful way. There were designers that were working with pre or post consumer waste, you know, and again, recontextualizing something that people think generally is is wasted and, and worthless. You know, there were designers that were paying fairly and were talking about the transparency of their supply chain. And so they might have had local press, but they just weren't being put together in a book. And it wasn't being done from a fashion perspective. You know, I mean, the tradition of our industry comes out of the ecological movement. That's where it was given birth. But that also meant that it did have crunchy and granola roots to it because people that were commenting about it were talking about the ethics and not about the aesthetics of and garments. The, you know, the worthy elements weren't always married up with the aesthetic dynamism, if you like. No, yeah, and it's still, That was a nice way of saying it were boring. Yeah, <laughs> or strange, or, <laughs> you know, and it still goes on. And, you know, in fairness, there's a market for everything. But, uh, you know, I'm a fashionista at heart. I always have been. And to me, it's absolutely vital that these clothes are aspirational. Absolutely. Yesterday, though, you mentioned that, okay, at that time of eco-fashion, there were these connotations. Now Mm. you said, though, the worry is that sustainable and ethical fashion is elitist. Yeah, it's done a pendulum swing from being crunchy and granola to now being, well, only rich people can afford it. You know, how can I, in good conscience, consider spending this amount of money on a piece of clothing when I can get a $5 top down the street? And so, but I, also this idea that we're talk as people who are advocates for ethical fashion, yeah. we're also talking down to people that can't afford yes. it, which yeah. I hate, makes me cringe. Oh, I know, dear. but the truth is, I mean, that sentiment crosses lots of different things. I mean, you get the same sentiment in the in the political sphere that you know the celebrities that talk about democracy or liberal values are looked down on by politicians as being elitist or people that follow them or have the same sentiments, you know. So it crosses many different places that somehow people that have values are those that can afford to have values. Which isn't true. No, it shouldn't be. I mean, you know, we can all live by values. Yes, we all have restrictions. Of course we do. But we can choose our values and we can choose to invest in them. So how do we fight that perception then that right now sustainable fashion is somehow only for the privileged few it's a good question because i think that we're talking about a culture shift i mean generations that have grown up with knowing that clothing only does cost them five dollars to get a top that they can wear out to a particular event and you know when you when clothing is that cheap it can't have an an innate value in it. How can it? You're paying less than you can for your frappuccino, whatever, at the coffee shop. So, you know, and you throw that away when you've worn it once, ingested it. So I, I think that we're looking for a culture shift and it's very difficult to take that back. How do you go to kids who've been used to doing that and say, well, now you're going to have to pay two, four, whatever, times more, and you're going to have to make careful choices. But they're going to be ones that, you know, that you invest a value in. I mean, I know that you can ask me pretty much about anything I wear on a daily basis. Like your shoes? <laughs> yeah, like my shoes. And they'll Talk have, us through your shoes. They'll have a story. Well, they were made by the village cobbler in London, and they're covered in a special textile, and I've forgotten the name of the London weaver, but they were handmade, and they're, they're just ridiculous. I call them my Frankenweenie boots. <laughs> 
<laughs> and I love them. Now we're on the subject. <laughs> Yesterday you were wearing a fantastic dress and I said, what's that dress? And you said, it's Bottega. I was like, Ooh. Yeah, I know. It sounds really fancy, doesn't it? But it was vintage. I mean, God knows I can't afford Bottega first, you know, <laughs> in season. Love their designs, of course. Exceptional line. But, you know, I tend to troll some really lovely, well-edited vintage online stores. But also, I've seen you in that dress before because I watched oh, a video God, yeah. of you in it. So it is therefore something that you're getting wear out of. It's not Absolutely. just, you know, these things that we hunt for and then do invest in but keep hold of. Yeah, I mean, you know, why wouldn't I love a, a vintage Bottega Veneta? I'd mean, get buried in it if I had it. And I'm sure the person before me loved it as well. So, you know, it's fantastic. I mean, in fairness, it didn't actually fit me properly. I had to get it altered. And, That's lovely too. But, you know, it was the lining. No one can tell. <laughs> All right. This is switching tack. But again, just referring back to the talk that you gave yesterday, I was madly taking notes on the back of an envelope. I love it when that happens. I wasn't planning <laughs> on taking notes. So when you started talking, I was like, oh, my God, yes. And one of the things that you said that spun me out because I thought I know stuff and I'd never heard of this was the nine and a half heads. Yeah. Yeah. This is, a, I guess, an inside secret, maybe, or not really. Um, not now. Yeah. Well, the, the way you teach fashion illustration, I mean, you've seen a million fashion illustrations. They don't realistically portray the human body, right? They're super, super skinny. They're very, very tall and elongated. And they're invariably based on on our ideal of beauty, Western, white. So you use a measure when you're drawing the fashion illustration of the head. So if the head, the length of the head from the top to the chin has a measurement, that head should fit into a fashion illustration nine and a half times. And each point the head hits at is a point on the body. So for example, there's the first head, the second end of the head hits the bus point, the third end of the head hits the waist, the fourth end of the head is the groin, and so on and so on. But what's nine it and like half in heads. real life? It's about six and a half to seven heads so effectively we're adding about a foot and a half two feet to a normal um, length of the body but without adding any extra weight so I mean this human being doesn't even exist on the runway you know our size zero six foot models this isn't even an exaggeration on that but that's how we design and you know I think that that as a starting point is really problematic because as a designer if that's how you're taught to illustrate then you're representing it then in how you develop your clothing how you produce it how you represent it on the catwalk how you get your eye in even when you're just thinking about the line Well, I mean, therein is is an intrinsic problem with it. If you're trying to design on a nine and a half head figure and you've got various cut lines or design lines in it, they don't represent a real human body. So when you actually come to drape it, cut it, you go, well, I can't quite get that angle actually because really a person isn't that tall or that skinny. So it doesn't even work. But, you know, we've used it forever. And that's just a standard measurement. And I think it does us a disservice. What are the broader ramifications of intentionally elongating the female form in that context? I mean, listeners might go, well, illustration, whatever, who does that? But actually, it means more, doesn't it, broadly? It does. I mean, the illustration is what gives birth to the actual piece of clothing, which, you know, follows through onto its representation in media on the catwalk, is the example of what we hold up as being the ideal of beauty, which is 
incredibly narrow you know this concept that we have to be tiny and and tall and skinny and preferably western i mean i think that the lack of diversity which is beginning to change thankfully in the media and publications in advertising in brands on runways but it's only beginning to change i mean you can still spot you know victoria's secret or any number of of other brands that just don't embrace any form of diversity and i think that's hugely problematic oh it's quite um I'm not ashamed to say gratified to see that Victoria's Secret was getting a bit of a slamming at the end of last year when they had their latest show. Yeah. I mean, the response in the media was quite broadly, this yeah. is old-fashioned rubbish. Like, why are all yeah. these girls exactly the same? Why are they all so skinny? Why is it also mm-hmm. so male gaze orientated? Mm-hmm. And who's this for? And I think actually we are at a point where that feels in the era of Me Too. Yeah. Completely irrelevant. Stupid. Absolutely. It, it feels insulting, actually. And if I remember the response from them was that it's not our customer. Well, actually, it sort of is your customer because if you look at your own size range, it is your customer. <laughs> so it's not even in touch with your own product. And we're using them as an example. And it's, you know, it, that's... Well, there's a, plenty of others. But I mean, are. that's just a very visible one, isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. Absolutely. But what about the broader cultural ramifications of the way that we present the female form through fashion? And I'm thinking yeah. about body image. Yep. The crisis in confidence in young people when they look at these images and they feel that they're not represented. Yep. No, I mean, I, I think that there are serious ramifications. I know I reeled off a bunch of figures the other day when I gave the talk about, you know, mostly um, US-centric, because that's where I've been for the last sort of 18-odd years. So, but 91% of all women in the US being unhappy with their bodies. I mean, how Say is that? Say that again. 91% of women in the US being unhappy with their bodies. And I'm sure that figure translates to most Western countries. I mean, how... There's got to be something wrong if 91% of the population think there's something wrong with their physical form. And it's based on what they see and what's considered desirable and what's considered beautiful. And you can keep that within a context of Western beauty. But if you expand that into other cultures and, and much more diversity, if you're never seeing a likeness of yourself in the pages of a magazine or on adverts or in fashion campaigns, you know, it just adds to the devaluing of inclusion. I mean, you can take that into a number of things. You know, before President Obama, how could you possibly, as a a little black guy or girl, think, well, I want to be the next president? If you've never seen one, you know, we need inclusion and we need to see representations of ourselves to know that something's possible Mm. and something's desirable Mm. and something's valued and something's beautiful you also shared some other horrible stats around eating disorders Mm -hmm. um, among very young people yeah 95 percent of those have eating disorders are between the ages of 12 and 25 it's so heartbreaking isn't it 12 i mean it's really terrible do you think that fashion has a really strong part to play in this because obviously it's also about celebrity culture and Mm -hmm. what we see in films and on on advertising billboards but how implicated obviously not empirically but just in your view is the fashion industry in this problem it's a big problem and i think that they are implicated enormously actually the tipping point that we're at with fashion and have been for a few years now although we haven't quite got over the edge is that it's a system and it's a system that was based on a single model of success you know as designers you're told you must do these things if you ever want to be successful you must design for a, a good runway model who's a size zero and a size you know six foot tall you must show clothing and wholesale it and you must do runway shows and you must wholesale 
and you can't do one-offs because buyers don't understand them or you can't work you outside have to adhere of the, to the seasons. seasons. Mm. You know, all of these things, thankfully, many designers have been finding ways around this and selling direct to consumers and selling in small quantities or selling one-offs or any number of things. So there are ways around it, um, but it's still not mainstream. And so I think that's part of it. That's the expectation of beauty. You must adhere to this ideal of beauty, otherwise you're seen as a bit weird and niche and how can you possibly hope to be successful? Oh, God. I hate it because it's actually just so stupid, isn't it? I mean, as women who work in an industry which caters to women and is largely, it's perhaps not run by women, there's a lot of men at the top. Mm. However, we consume it. It's Mm -hmm. made for us. We make it. I work in it. We know this is garbage. I mean, that single idea of beauty is actually completely offensive and stupid, isn't it? And yet, why do we let it happen, I guess? What's my question? Why as consumers do we buy into this? I think it's just so ingrained, you know, and it's been so ingrained for so long. I gave the example about cultural appropriation and, you know, there's been a lot of designers called out over that in the last couple of years. And it's been a problem for a long time because as designers we're told that, you know, the world is full of wonderful, exotic people, places, use whatever you want to come up with your ideas. And we don't teach them that there's a cost to that and that there are people implicated and there are belief systems and there are sacred symbolism. And you can't just go whipping things out and going, you know, plonking it on a dress and it's all okay. And so I think that... um, it's just such an ingrained system. So I think the, there was a quote from the creative director of Louis Vuitton who did that collection, I want to say about a year, maybe it's two years ago, where it was all in, all based on, it was the Africa collection and they used a lot of red and black checks, the sugar wrap from the Maasai. Wasn't that Westwood? And no, Westwood certainly has uh, ah. utilised, but it was, it was actually Vuitton. And, and actually... Um, Comme des Garçons had a lot of flack around the same time as well. But anyway, there are a number of people, so I don't really particularly like to pick on an individual name or a brand. But the response is often, but I'm inspired by it. It's beautiful. I'm honouring it. I'm paying homage. Well, you know what? Let's think about this and break it down. And this is the problem we don't because it's an ingrained system. But if you actually say, well, wait a minute, I am using a tribal indigenous inspiration for the basis of a commercial collection that we are going to make millions off because we're a multinational brand at the high level and I'm basing on a people who are struggling for land rights or access to clean water or education how in anybody's mind is that ethical and I think the problem is it's just so ingrained that we don't think about it and that's the issue it's breaking out of a system that is just considered the only system Oh, God. Um, Here's a quote. To quote you back at yourself, Mm. our prejudice has allowed our entire industry to ignore the beauty of diversity. Now, we've talked about body diversity. We've touched on cultural appropriation. But you were talking, in that case, I think, about fashion's whitewashing problem. And you mentioned the fact that until fairly recently, nude was considered a single shade. I mean, come on. I know. Seriously, it was, though. I mean, you can go into any department store. Still is a nude heel? Yeah. Or you go to buy underwear, nude underwear. Have a look at it. (laughs) And there's usually only one shade of nude underwear. And it looks a bit more like my skin colour or your skin colour than most of the other people I know. So, yeah, I mean, that's part of you know lack of inclusivity and if you don't see yourself reflected uh, how can you not feel devalued another great example is when we talk about ableism and the fact Mm -hmm. that we only ever see again one type of physical Mm -hmm. beauty yes presented and that would be 
a very conventional view, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And then it becomes tokenistic. Amy Mullins. you got Amy Mullins. Well, we're fine now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but we don't have a lot to do with, or until recently I haven't heard very much conversation around actually designing for disabled people no. or just looking at how clothes function. If That's you, right. Yeah. It's generally thought of as being really unsexy. I mean, you know, as a, an educator in the fashion field, you tell your students, okay, we're going to do a, a project now on the aged or on the disabled. You just look at the faces you get back from that. And they're not exactly excited generally speaking or we're going to do something for refugees you know these are meaningful important things and it's not that every fashion designer has to get their mind around this and design into it but design at its purest is meant to be a problem solving tool and the problem with fashion is it's forgotten that it's become purely about beautification and aesthetics and that has its value god knows i'm a diehard fashionista i want my ethical fashion fashionable you know i'm not into crunchy organo and I'm not into boring beige but uh, it has to have a reason to make our life better I saw a wonderful exhibition last year at the FIT which was about I've forgotten the name of it we'll look it up and share a link Mm. in the show notes and actually I would refer listeners back to an excellent podcast we did last season with Kimberly Jenkins on fashion and race I think we mentioned it there it featured the work of Becca McCarran from Chromat but also it featured well it had an FIT grad yeah (laughs) there was another one though and I wondered if you remembered her name it featured a designer who had designed for people using wheelchairs and it was all about changing the line so that it functioned for sitting down figuring out how the sleeves ought to work it was so interesting and I thought I've never seen that presented in a way like that and it felt like this is a moment where we are actually at least on the edges of beginning to reconsider yes we are we are. I mean, actually, I think it was Tommy Hilfiger came out last year with a otherly abled collection. So it's really nice to see a big brand tackling it. Um, but Open Style Lab out of Parsons, which is a collaboration between Parsons and MIT, who work with not just, actually, it's with students in, in Parsons, but they work with occupational therapists and engineers to evaluate the needs of differently abled people. I mean, you know, clothing's meant for those that, that stand upright, not sit all day in a wheelchair and many much clothing just isn't comfortable or doesn't work effectively if you're wheelchair bound or if you have I mean there are all sorts of disabilities that affect your posture that affect your mobility and they have different needs I love the idea that you look at this as fashion design as problem solving yeah I think it should be I mean I really it strips the complexity out of it actually if you frame it like that you're saying you've got a job and your job is to solve this problem in a gorgeous and functional way no absolutely I I mean, that's the basis of all design, generally speaking. Well, it is speaking. outside of fashion, yeah. Outside of fashion. The, it, I mean, good design is considered to be the marriage of form and function. It's not just form. It's not just how it looks. It's how does it function? What problem does it solve? And that's meant to be the basis of all good design. That's the problem with fashion. It's forgotten that. All right. I just want to just zip back to raise something else that you touched on in your talk, which was, I thought, so interesting. In April 2018, The Guardian ran a story titled Glossies So White, the data that reveals the problem with British magazine covers. And of 214 covers published in 2017 by the 19 best-selling glossies in the UK, only 20 featured a person of colour. Yeah. And four of them, three were homewares mags, but one was Marie Claire, yeah. featured no person of colour 
ever that whole year. Yeah, and there's some, wow, wow. there's some shocking figures. I mean, that's the UK. The um, Huffington Post did a, also a similar research the year before based on American magazines, and it's not so dissimilar. So you can see it repeated. And it's that old belief that you put a person of colour on, on the cover and it's going to affect sales negatively. You know, I've experienced that myself. I shall not tell the details due to not wishing to point fingers at previous bosses, but I remember very clearly a time when I was pushing to put an amazing Asian actress on the cover of a magazine and was told, oh, that won't sell. Yeah. I mean, it's abhorrent rubbish, but it's actually not even true. No, <laughs> it just, and it's, it's not, not only true. true, it's not true. But those ingrained prejudices did loom large until very recently, yep. potentially still do if we're looking at these yeah. stats. I mean, that's 2017, we're yeah. not talking about ancient history here, and we're talking about the 19 best-selling glossy magazines in the UK. So we're talking about, you know, a major Western fashion base, and it's still reflected, and the same in the US. So I doubt it's very dissimilar in many other Western cultures. Thank so. God for Edward in full hey yeah I know but you know once again yeah but didn't you love his first cover with a doer I mean I, I just absolutely thought absolutely did but we hmm. the problem part of what we do is get into tokenism then okay one's there we have an editor of a major magazine who's a person of colour and that's fantastic but it's one you know we talk about tokenism here and yes we need to see these examples and we need to see high profile examples and they can affect major change and that's really important but it must be greater change We've touched on so many big issues that I think you could do standalone podcasts about just one of those issues and make it deep and still not cover it all. Yeah. It's really complex, but it does all tie into your word ethics. Yeah. It all comes under the same remit and it's all interconnected. But if you're listening to this and thinking, whoa, fashion stuffed, isn't it? I mean, it's got all this stuff wrong. <laughs> I guess my question is, what can we do as participants in the fashion system to shift this so that it becomes generally more inclusive more fair more just and a better picture for the future that's a hard question it is but you know I I think it's a good one because I think that what we have to do is not do things by default because that's the way they're done I think we need to question what we do what we do and why we do them and not just go on autopilot because that's how it was done before and that's how it's expected to be done so whether that's as simple as you know the daily choices that you make with your food or your clothing or whether it's you're an editor in a magazine or you're an editor educator in a university we all have opportunities it doesn't matter what your position is you know I'm one of the really lovely stories I have from when I was at FIT and and started a conference on sustainability in fashion and textiles that ran for I think five years before I left we would have attendees from all over the world and some of them were from big brands some of them were small emerging designers some of them we had even attendees from the EPA would come to the conference which was fantastic but I particularly remember one iconic panel that we had with the creative director of Eden at the time, Julie Gilhart, and I can't remember the other panelist. And we had a technical designer from a big brand that I won't mention in the audience. And she said, I'm only a technical designer. What can I do to affect change? I'm not designing the collection. I'm not producing it. I just do the tech packs. What can I do? And Julie, uh, true to form, got a bit pissy and she was fantastic. And she said, I don't effing care. Do something. I don't care if you start with the hang tag. And so I got a a very long two-page email from this participant, this attendee, a year later, and she attended the conference for like three years in a row. She sent me a long email and she said, you know what, after that, I went back to the company 
I was working for. And I did. I changed the hang tags. I changed them to recycled paper because I could do that. And then I changed the ink to be biodegradable ink. And then I changed the plastic bags to be biodegradable plastic bags and doing six packs instead of single packs. And she was a tech designer in a very large company and ended up making massive change in a company and helped spur them to make more ethical decisions. So we all have some power, no matter what we do or where we are. Brilliant. (laughs) Start where you are, my favourite phrase. Absolutely. And this is now ending where we are. Thank you very much, Sass Brown. Thank you. It was a pleasure. It's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. I tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you